0: Welcome to the Harbor Church podcast. Harbor is here to connect people with Jesus and with each other. If you're looking to get connected, you can find more info at harborchurch.com. Now here's this week's message from Pastor Josh. All right, let's jump into the message this week. We are finishing up our series on crazy things in the Bible. You're driving me crazy. We looked at... Kings who have lost their mind and started eating grass like donkeys. We looked at some cannibalism. We looked at some heavy, heavy stuff. Last week, we looked at demon possession, just crazy stories in the Bible. This week's story is about a dude who shows up at church and starts pushing tables and yeeting coins out and like just, like just kicking people over, like going nuts. And you would be like, that's kind of a crazy story. Not as crazy as some of the other stuff we heard. The really crazy part or the really hard to grasp part is the person doing all of that is Jesus. You might be like, well, no, not my Jesus. Yeah, Jesus does this. Jesus acts in a way that would seem on the surface crazy or erratic, especially when you consider he does it in the temple. He goes to church and he acts like that. Like, pastor, you get you get a little upset if my phone goes off. I'm not flipping chairs and throwing stuff and screaming at people. Like, Jesus acted worse in church. Well, hold on, let's, let's get into why he does it. But it's a weird story if you don't really start to break it apart. Now, you find this in a lot of the gospels. We'll look at Mark's gospel and the way he tells the story today. For time's sake, we'll just go straight to ch- uh, verse 15 of chapter 11. Chapter 11, Mark says this. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he immediately began to drive out people. That sounds like the opposite of what you should do when you go to church. It wasn't just people. He was driving out the people that were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. That's important. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Hang on to that word. That's important. He said to them, the scriptures declare. So Jesus starts to quote the Bible. He says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And when the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, that's the church people, that's the most spiritual people, when they heard about what Jesus had done, they began planning to kill him. They were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. If you want to check out another reading on that, you can go to Matthew 21. That's another place you can see that same story. Now, this takes place chronologically right at the end of Jesus's time on earth. The day before this, this is the beginning of his last week before he dies on the cross. So right before this, he has what we celebrate at Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and the people of Jerusalem are so excited, they start ripping palm branches down off of trees and throwing them on the ground. And they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the, the, the son of David, he's come. Like They're so excited for who Jesus is. And it says that Jesus cries that he weeps. Not because of how great the parade was, but because he knew that deep in their hearts, as much as they're shouting, Hosanna today in a week, that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he knew, he knew how broken it was and what their, their whole belief system was broken. So it broke his heart. And right after the parade they threw for him, he shows up to the temple <laughs> throwing stuff. And some of you would be like, well, this is crazy behavior, but... Is it just because he's getting ready to die? No, Jesus does this at the end of his life, but he also did it at the beginning. There's another time early on in the beginning of his career, and John records that one in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verse 13, it says it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, the celebration they would have. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem, like most of the good Jews would. And in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. I'll come back to that too. Jesus made a whip from ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered money changers' coins all over the floor and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy about the Messiah that said, Passion for God's house will consume me. See, this is a hard story to understand, and I've heard it m- mispreached a lot. I've heard a lot of bad pastors preach this out of context. You might have heard a message on this, and they use it to justify some stupid actions. I love that Jesus isn't a pushover. But this is not justification for acting in anger. This isn't justification for uh, being erratic and, and being mean. And some of you be like, oh, that's what Jesus is doing. No, no, it's not. Hang on. But see, I've heard it preached that, like, Jesus is so mad that they sold stuff in church. Like, your church can't sell coffee or, or t shirts or whatever. That's not what he's saying. That's not, that's not the problem here. I've heard people say, see, See what Jesus is doing? Whipping tables, throwing money. That's how I act when I lose monopoly. So I think, <laughs> I think I'm being Christ like. You should allow me. See, we, we have erratic, chaotic behavior when we're led by our emotions. It said they remembered a prophecy that said that he would have passion for God's house. When the, what the disciples were, were remembering, the prophecy about the Messiah they were remembering, comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9 says, passion for your house has consumed me, and those who insult you, those insults have fallen on me. I feel passionately about any time you're insulted. That's the Messiah's heart. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, and especially at the end of his ministry, he has a, his last couple of days on earth. He could have done some great miracles. He could, have pre- he could have waited then to preach the Beatitudes. He could have had this amazing sermon. What does Jesus do his last couple days there on earth? He goes to the temple and he cleans house. It's that song we just sang. You're turning over tables. You're cleaning out the temple. Jesus uses his last time on earth and his beginning time on earth to set a very important message. He was filled with passion. And some of you, you're like, well, Pastor Josh, you always talk about not letting our emotions control us. It seems like Jesus did that. No, it didn't. See, emotions are great fuel. Passion is a fueling thing. God gave us emotions to fuel us, not to direct us. They're not meant to be a compass. They're meant to be a fuel. And Jesus is filled with passion, but he's not chaotic. He's not erratic. See, everything that Jesus flipped, pushed out, And everything he said was very intentional, very on purpose. See, when you lose your temper, when you get all worked up, you just do a lot of things that look like that that you end up regretting later. You say whatever comes, no, you always did it. You never did it. That's how you lose your temper. That's how you get passionate. That's how you, see, that's you being controlled by your emotions. Jesus didn't say one errant word. Every single word he said, very intentional. And everything that he attacked, every table he turned, every chair he flipped, every person he pushed out—it was dealing with a very toxic problem on purpose. See that we don't deal with problems that way; we just explode. Parents, I'll help you out really big here. Do not just go into your teenager and just, ah, "Everything, you're, you're, all your friends, and you're the worst, and your room's a mess." And blah. see, you've allowed one of their bad behaviors that needs to be dealt with to ruin. You're like, "I've had it up to here." And teenagers, you do that a lot. This is this is where he's saying, "Hey, you deal with the problem. Don't attack everything. Don't explode about everything. Don't make everything." Jesus didn't come in and be like, "The whole temple sucks. Everybody here is the worst." He didn't lose his composure. Godly passion is intentional, not irrational. This is where some, some of you are going to use today's as, as message as an excuse. I'm just being passionate like Jesus. No, you're a jerk. Don't put that on Jesus. All right. What was he so upset about? Well, let's start with what he said. He called it A den of thieves. Where did he get that? Jesus was quoting scripture when he says you've turned into a den of thieves. He was quoting a prophet from the Old Testament, a prophet who was known as a weeping prophet, a prophet whose heart was broken for how wicked and perverted Israel had become. Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, there was a prophet named Jeremiah who warned the Israelites they were screwing up God's plan for them right before they end up getting taken into captivity and they don't listen. And Jesus was quoting him when he said, you turn into a den of thieves. In Jeremiah chapter seven, verse number 11, he says, don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, this is God speaking here, has become a den of thieves. Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. He's saying, I see what's happening in my churches. Now today, we have to, we have to deal with this on, in a duality. As the pastor of Arbor Church, I'm gonna speak to us as a church, as a congregation. You need to understand Church is not a location, and it's not a building. It's not hyenas, and it's not a pet store. Church, Harbor Church, is the people that have, called, have been called out in an assembly together. That's why it's illegal in some countries to have church right now. They don't have an advertised address, but it's a group of people hiding in a field or hiding in somebody's basement, gathering together to praise the Lord, that's a church, the people. It's not the building, it's not the location. So I am gonna talk about us as a corporate church because as the pastor, I'm responsible for this under God, who is the head of our church. And you need to also understand that Paul says that if you're here and you're a believer, if you have Jesus Christ, and I know not all of you have a relationship with Christ, but if you are a Christian, if you actually have Jesus in your life, Paul says that your body is a temple then for the Holy Spirit. So you have a responsibility physically some of us are messing up, mentally, emotionally, and of course, spiritually, to take care of the temple that the Lord resides in. So this is an, you have to apply today's message to you individually, but then also for us corporately as a church. Jesus is saying, I'm passionate about you guys screwing up the temple. And God says, hey, I see everything that you're doing wrong. I am noticing some of your mistakes. Now, what was happening there? See, the Romans controlled everything. The Roman Empire ruled everything at that day and age, and they, they suppressed everything. They, they literally, every, they owned everybody. Everybody worked for them. But what they found was if they gave, their, gave their, their people some freedom, a little bit of room to operate, they would revolt less. The Jews would revolt often, and so the Romans said, hey, listen you owe us taxes, you work for us, we'll take crops, we'll do all that. But you know what? We'll leave you in your temple alone and you can keep your temple holy and we'll let you have your temple and we won't go in your temple, we won't mess with you there. And that, that was kind of to appease the Jews. And so what the Jews did is they set up their own system inside of the temple for what worked for them and the, the priests and the elders started to create things. Not stuff from the Bible, just stuff they wanted. And so what they did is they said, we don't wanna use Roman coinage. The Roman coins would have Caesar's face imprinted on them. And they said, we don't wanna use anything that has a human being's image, a graven image. So we're gonna make coins that don't have human beings on it because we don't want idolatry inside the temple. So they created these coins that kept them pure and holy except for, did you hear he said they had a foreign exchange rate. Who do you think was in charge of the exchange rate? Well, the priests they knew how to make money. And they set up this system where people had to pay for their animals to sacrifice, because here's what happened. The Old Testament law, the Jewish law was that you had to make a sacrifice at the temple. So anytime there was a big festival, the Jews would have to go on a pilgrimage. People who didn't live in Jerusalem would travel to Jerusalem so they could worship at the temple. And the law required that you would offer a sacrifice, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving or a sacrifice for your sin. Some some families would offer sheep, some would offer birds, some would offer, uh, you know, a, a cow, depending on what your means were. And uh, and the the Bible required that those sacrifices be spotless. They couldn't have those animals couldn't have any bruises or blemishes on them. Why, you ask? Great question. It's because God was setting up the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ, who was spotless, sinless. He knew no sin, but he became sin because we as sinners put him on the cross. He died in our place. He was the final sacrifice. God was setting up that picture for them. Up until Jesus's death, they were required to offer animals as sacrifice. I didn't get any amens out of that, so I'm a little disappointed in this service. (laughs) We'll wake up eventually. Um, they have, to bring these animals and the animals have to stay pure um, and spotless. And to, if you had to make a long journey, if you traveled for days or even weeks to get to Jerusalem, it'd be hard to keep your animal. You, you, they don't have paved roads. I mean, dirty, rocky roads in the desert, your animal could trip easily, get stuck on some brush, you know, get some thorns. It'd be very easy for your spotless animal to get an injury. Then you get all the way there and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be able to sacrifice it. So what they would do most of them, what they would do is they would take that animal and they would sell it and take the money that they got from it, pocket that, and then travel, by the way, when you hear the stories of robbers, that's what they were looking for, they're going to get that money. They would travel with that money, get to Jerusalem, and buy that same animal back to sacrifice to God. Well, once again, the priests and the marketplace guys, the farmers, they looked and they said, we can make a buck on that. So you would show up and they'd have you, they'd have you, you, you You'd be all the way there a week away from home and you need an animal and they're like, yeah, triple the price. And you would pay it because you got all the way there but you definitely didn't get, you didn't sell yours for that much. No, that was temple prices. Everything was more expensive in the temple. Almost like they had crossed a bridge or something. (laughs) Prices go up, you guys know how that works. Prices go up. And, And they were sitting there and they were manipulating that and Jesus is mad because they're taking advantage of people's desire to come to God. They're they're, they're so ready to come and know God. They're so ready to come and worship God, except for the fact that they don't have a sacrifice. And now the leaders are like, well, you need a sacrifice, but it's gonna cost you extra. And they're making it difficult for people to come to God. By the way, the new church, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the early church in the book of Acts struggled with the same problem. And I'd say the church today struggles with this problem. Back then, 2,000 years ago, the church in Acts was a bunch of Jewish people talking about Jesus, but a bunch of Gentiles start coming to know Jesus. And the Jews are like, well, you guys aren't Jewish, so can you, can you follow Jesus? I tell you what, you need to get circumcised, and you need to come to all these festivals, and you need to do these rules, and these rules, and these rules. And quickly, it became about rules instead of relationship. By the way, those of you that are like, Pastor, why are you always kind of hating on religion? Religion is man-made. It's not from God. The man-made problems with religion today are what drives people away. God didn't set it up that way. We broke it. Man broke it. And that's where a lot of you came from. A lot, Like a lot of us, we grew up in churches that became all about checking off rules. And by the way, when you get to heaven, God will not ask you what denomination you were. You don't stand there and he's like, are you Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, Benicott? Where are you? Did, you, did your church stand or sit during songs? Did you have stained glass? Did your choir have robes? Won't ask you any one of those questions. He'll ask you, what did you do with Jesus Christ? Was he your personal Lord and Savior? Did you accept or did you reject Christ? That's the only, only, only difference between getting into heaven and not. It has nothing to do with what church you grew up in or what denomination you are, just so you know. So when all, it comes to all of these rules that we've added, say this, do this, don't do that, stand this way. Go there, huh? That's all Man-made and it's messed up a lot of people. And Jesus is looking at all the things they've added. He said, you're making it difficult. The church in Acts, they were doing the same thing. And James, actually at the the council in Jerusalem, he says this in Acts 15, 19. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Stop making it hard for people to see God in or around you. You're here, and those of you, and I know once again, not all of you have Jesus Christ in your life, but if you do, if you're actually a believer, then your job is to point people to Jesus. Why is it that the people who claim to know Jesus are the, some of the ones that are doing the most damage uh, keeping people from Jesus? See, I talk to people, and what they say is they oh, I love the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible actually has is really sweet, really kind, really merciful. The Jesus of the Bible does some really great things. I love the Jesus of the Bible. I hate the Jesus that I see in my neighbor. I work with that girl that goes to your church. She's one of the worst. Oh, yeah, that guy, yeah, yeah, he's my cousin. He's a Christian. He's one of the biggest whiners I know. She's one of the biggest gossips I know. They're they're such a hypocrite. The people of God seem to make it difficult for others to come to God. So although you may be sitting there going, Pastor, I don't sell animals in the church. (laughs) You may still be making it difficult for people to come to God. You see what, what they were doing, and here's the bigger problem. The priests and the religious leaders of the day and those farmers, they looked at the people who needed a relationship with God and they saw opportunity. They saw opportunity to make money. Now, you might be sitting there going, that's not me. I don't do that. Hold up. Let me simplify it for you. They used people to get what they wanted, and you do that. You're guilty of the same root sin of looking at other people as a way to make yourself happy. How do I know that's true? There's some of you in here that your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife... The love that you get from them, you need them to validate you, you need love, you need somebody to find you attractive, you need that to feel good about yourself. That's not about your love for them, that's about what they are making you feel. Some of you as parents, you need your kid to perform so that you feel as though, though that you, you're a good parent. You need, you need your kid to get certain grades or to perform in sports or to do something so that it validates you as a parent. That's why you, you're so, I mean like, be proud of your kids, but you're so proud of what it makes for you. That's why you get frustrated at them when they disobey. Not because you love them and you wanna correct their heart so that they know and follow Jesus. You're just embarrassed that people might think you're a bad mom or a bad dad. See, what you're doing is you're using the people in your life for yourself. That's very selfish. Some of you use your boss or your employees or your coworkers to make sure you have purpose in your life. My job is where I find it. So you need other people to validate purpose or meaning. You find your identity in people. That is unhealthy, it's toxic, and it's just as guilty as these guys making money off of pilgrims. Stop using people. For your own gains. This is how I know you have, it's a very clear indicator, it should be a red flag, that you have lost sight of the mission that God has for you, which is to love Him and serve others. You've lost sight of the mission when you start to see other people as means to an end. When you start looking at other people, it's like, how can they make me happy? How can how can I how can I get better today? You know how that happens in church? Stop being so upset that somebody took your seat. Stop stop whining about the fact that you didn't get to park here and you had to park there. Stop looking at other people as competition for your happiness and start looking and saying, God, how could you use me to serve? God, I'm excited to park in Egypt so that a guest could come and have a closer spot. Instead of going, it's rainy and drizzly. Stop. If you can't do it on church the day you're coming to worship God, I know you ain't acting like that on Monday at work. You ain't walking in going, Greg, please have the closer spot. I want to serve you. You're like, freak, screw you, Greg. Go pound sand. There is nothing in your heart that's, that's serving others. I mean, you can't even do it in, a, in an easy environment. You're not gonna do it in a hard environment. And God said, love him first and love others. Your priority should be God first, people second, and yourself last. And we don't do that. And Jesus is flipping tables to expose the fact that deep down, the people who are supposed to be closest to God are filled with the most selfishness. Amen, pastor, preach that. Okay, I will. The Bible actually says in Philippians chapter two, verse three: "Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of yourself as better than, uh, th- thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't only look out for what interests you. For what benefits you, you could say there. Take an interest in other people. What would help them? How could I bless my wife tomorrow?" how could I make my mom or dad, just their life a little bit easier in the morning? See, I have to start thinking outside of my selfishness and I have to start thinking about, God, how could you use me to bless others? Almost like that's what God did himself. That's almost like that's what Jesus was doing as a model. See, I don't know who said it. I couldn't find the original author, so I'm just gonna quote it as unknown. But I love this saying, your purpose in life is not to please yourself and serve God. See, this sounds good. I got to make myself happy and I'm serving God. I love me some Jesus. I'm serving God. That's actually not what he's called you to. He's called you to please him and to serve others. What God wants from your life is that his desires, his kingdom is the first and foremost thing in your life. The thing that he has for you to do after you pursue God is that you start loving other people. We do that so backwards, what makes me happy today, and if God can be a part of it and make me a little bit happier, he'll be a genie that sprinkles God blessings on top. That's not how it works. It is, not, it is not you do you and God blesses your plan. It's you saying, God, what is your plan? Let me do that. And along the way, if I can help other people, please use me to help other people. You understand how backwards that is? Every, not every, most of the prayers that you have are very selfish prayers. God, I need, I need, I want, I need, I want, can you, can you, can you, can you you please? And very rarely is it your will be done. Whatever you want today, I'm your servant, God. We treat God like he's our servant. That's why he tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says, seek ye first God's kingdom, not your castle. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and then all that other crap that you want will fall in line. But see, what you and I do is we use God to get what we want. Do you understand that if you serve God, he will make you a better mother or father or husband or wife or friend? Stop putting your love life and your family and your job and your money and your entertainment and all that stuff, stop putting all that above God. You put God first and all that other stuff gets trickled down into the right priorities, and he actually helps you with all those things. How do I know that's such a problem? Well, what else did Jesus say? He said den of thieves. We all look at den of thieves and we're like, yeah, thievery, robbing, bad. I'm so smart, I, don't, I wouldn't do that. That's clearly sin. It is clearly sin. A den of thieves, nobody thinks is a good thing. Den of thieves, obviously Jesus is upset. You know what he also said? He said it's a marketplace. Now what's wrong with a marketplace? Nothing. A marketplace isn't a den of thieves. A den of thieves is sin. Robbery, thievery—that's the, the the merchants, you know, miss, mishandling the exchange rate and charging them extra. That's all evil, and we can immediately identify the sin there. But a marketplace—you need a marketplace. Marketplaces are good, buy and sell. Heck, none of us, I mean, most of us, you know, we, we need we need Stop and Shop or Market Basket or whatever, you know, Roach Brothers. We need that. Like we ain't growing enough food, you know. They don't have gummy bears in in my garden, you know, like. I'm gonna need that, you know. Um, the The problem is is not that a marketplace is bad; it's that the marketplace has become the primary function of the church. See, the way it worked was the temple was created, and the outermost area, the outer court, was the place that the Gentiles could come and worship. The Gentiles could come. To the outer court. They couldn't go to the inner court. They couldn't go any further in. That was just for people who were Jewish. Now, if you're a Gentile and you wanted to worship God, you would show up at that temple and you had to stay in just that outer court. And you got to understand how big a deal that would have been. Those people would have been rejecting the Greek mythology of the day. They would have been pushing back on the Roman polytheism of the day. They would have had to to turn their backs on the Canaanite paganism. Like everybody else in the world had multiple gods, pagan gods, but the Israelites had this Yahweh God who claimed to be the one and only true God. And there were Gentiles, and you can read about them in scripture, Ruth and Rahab, like there's a lot of of people. Jethro, there's, there's people who weren't Jewish but who said, yeah, this God is the real God. I'm going to serve him. So for a Gentile to show up, they had one place that they could come as a sanctuary to pray and to worship. And the Jewish leaders were like, yeah, but you know what? If we start selling stuff there and we have some stuff for them, then like people will like on this side of town will come through our courtyard and use our courtyard as a cut through and then we can make some money off them and like we'll just get more foot traffic and we'll be more popular and we'll do that. And so the one place that people had to come and worship, can you imagine being a Gentile trying to just sit there and pray to this one Yahweh God, even though everybody else says that that's fake, you're like, no, I'm choosing to believe in this God and you come to pray, you come to worship. And you got a guy over here, two doves, one dollar, two doves over here. And this guy's over here and he's moving his cow and his cow's pooping next to you. And you're, you're like, oh my gosh, that's gross. And this guy's over here like, hey, my friend, come on here, my friend, my friend. Let me show you deal over here, my friend. Let me show you over here. And this guy's over here and he's trying to pray. And he's like, I guess, ah, la, 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 la. Okay, I can't, I can't. See, what they were doing was they were taking things that aren't bad. A marketplace isn't bad. But this is how Satan works masterfully in our lives. He takes things that aren't sin. And he distracts them with them, with us. He distracts us with them to the place that that's all we can focus on, and we can't really focus on God. And so God keeps moving down the line. How do I know that? Some of you, you're distracted all the time. I watch you. You know I can see you, right? I know you think I can't see you, but I can see you. I watch you. You can't, you can't make it through an hour in church without looking at your phone. Some of you consume with it. You're like, I just got to know who texted me. There's oh, an icon. You just have to, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I got to make plans for after this. I'm hungry. I wish you'd shut up so I can go eat. I got to... I got to make lunch plans. I got to figure that out. Some of you, some of you, it's not your phone; it's your work, man. Your work is consuming. You have no time for anything else because, man, you're, you're you're working overtime now. That's time and a half. That's great, man. You got to work. You are like, so distracted by work. Work's got you. Your work's got you. You got to make money. You got to get there. Some of you, it's not that; it's your entertainment. You're like you're, you you got so many things that entertain you right now. You're in that new season on Netflix, and man, you have just been watching that and it's so great. I can't wait to see that next show. And even if I am tired, I'm gonna stay over one more. Right now, before you get mad at me. None of those things are sin. They're not. I think your cell phone can be a great tool. And I think working hard at your job honors God. And I think relaxing and, as long as you're not watching something horrible, like relax, watch some TV, I don't care. But those are distractions that become primaries and now God has no room to work in your life. You have no margin for God to speak into your life. And so you're just sitting there going, well, I don't hear from God. So here's how it works. A distracted heart, I'm gonna start with a distracted A distracted heart is when you are unable to focus. That Gentile coming into the courtyard, the marketplace is not a bad thing, but the marketplace is not the sanctuary. There needed to be time for your heart to be focused. And if you are unfocused on God, because you are so distracted by all the things that the world offers you, aren't you paying attention? You know I'm preaching to you, right? I'm not talking about these people anymore. I'm talking about your heart right here today, the fact that you can't channel that and say, God, what do you have for me? Your heart is so distracted by what you want. The world has told you that you are the primary God of your life, that your plan and your desires and what you want is the most important, because it's all about you. And guess who's the God of your life in that case? You. And what the Lord has actually created you for is to surrender that he might be the God of your life. But because you're so distracted in your heart, what that leads to is diluted worship. Your worship is not pure. You're not truly surrendered. That's why some of you struggle to sing songs. You struggle to pay attention to God's word. That's why you don't get any of God's word outside of this. You're, do you understand that the 45 minutes we get together, hour that we get together, is not enough I'm the only, for some of you, I'm the only one right now telling you that God has better for your life if you're surrendered to him. The rest of your time, the other six days and a half that you're not here, you're hearing from the world, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, every TV show you watch, every book you read, it all tells you about you are the God of your life. You do you, what do you want? What would make you happy? And for one hour, you get to hear that God has something better for you. You understand that's not enough, right? Like you should be in your word outside of here. You should be praying outside of here, but you don't have that worship. You don't have that, 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 that time with God. You, this is it. And some of you, it's because you grew up in religion, not in relationship. You grew up and you're like, I checked the box. I went to church today. So much better than pagans. <laughs> what? At what point does God love you more because you decided that you would sit in the church service? He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want rules for you to follow. How do I know that? This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you, not to have more rules for you. What I want is I want for you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Let's come back to our, our distracted heart. Distracted heart leads you to diluted worship. If you have diluted worship, it will lead you to a disengaged relationship. See, this is where you feel like you're growing further away from God. This is why some of you don't hear from God. This is why some of you, you you keep making stupid choice after stupid choice. That's why some of you, your marriage is not getting any healthier. This is why some of you, your addiction is not getting weaker. It's getting stronger. It's because you are not putting focus on who is God, who really should be the God of your life. You're still keeping you and your desires and your wants. You're still kind of, it's more of you and less of him. And the Bible says, no, no, it should be less of you every day and more of him. And until you reprioritize your focus, you're always going to stay distracted. And when you're distracted, your worship won't be where it should be. And when you're not really worshiping, you're not really walking with him. And the further you walk away from him, the more distracted you'll be by the stuff the world offers, which is going to just keep being a vicious cycle of you not being the man or woman that you were called to be. And if you can't see Satan's master plan in your life right here, wake up. You're so naive. He has created a world full of distractions. That's not the only thing that Jesus said, though. He said, hey, it's not just a marketplace and a den of thieves. It's supposed to be what? He said a house of prayer. When he quoted Jeremiah saying it was a den of thieves, he also quoted another scripture when he said house of prayer. He quoted from Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56 of the book he wrote, it says in verse seven, I will bring them to my holy mountain, my mountain of Jerusalem. I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices because my temple, my church, and my person, the temple, you individually, us corporally, my temple will be called a house of prayer. He doesn't just end it there, though. Look at the last three words for all nations. Jesus said it when he was in the temple. Isaiah said it there in the Old Testament. This is supposed to be for all nations, all nations. See, what he was exposing when he flipped the tables, when he told this guy to get out and he told that guy to get out, he not only told him, hey, you've made it a distraction. You're cheating, you're distracting people, but what he also says is you're biased against the Gentiles. You think you're better than people, why? Because you don't need the outer court. You had the inner court. They only have the outer court. And you've turned the outer court into this giant distraction. It's supposed to be a place for all nations. And what he does in that moment, he shows they have a bigotry, a bias in their hearts where they thought, well, I'm a little bit better. Now I know that's not a problem with church today. No church people ever look down their nose, but let's just say hypothetically, Hypothetically, that happened and was happening today. How would we deal with that? We need to understand that Jesus was very passionate, dare I say upset, when the people that said they knew him, that were the people who claimed that we were walking with God, those same people were not extending love and grace and the message of God outside of their own comfort circle, their own their own their own whatever their bias was I'm not even going to get into them today maybe it was their age range, maybe it was their race maybe it was their social status but they weren't extending it they were like this is us this is, this is where I feel comfortable sharing Jesus and Jesus goes no 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 God said this is open to everybody he's using the Jews to tell everybody about him but everybody is welcome you see some of you you have God in your life but you're not following up with what it is he's now called you to do. Do you remember in John 3, 16, it said God so loved the world, God loved the entire world, that he did what? He gave up his only son, that's Jesus. For what point? So that you and only your friends can have life. See, we replace this with me and the people I like, so that me and inside my comfort zone And yet God said so that everyone, anyone, anyone who would believe in Jesus wouldn't perish but could have eternal life. See, what Jesus is doing in this last moment of flipping tables is he's being innately, as in his nature, insistently inclusive. He's being innately, insistently inclusive. His very nature, his innate nature is that I will will go out of my way to insist upon inclusion. He's like, I'm the Jesus who showed up and sat next to and touched the lepers that everybody said was... Unworthy that you couldn't touch the lepers. She's like, I'm the guy who showed up and befriended the prostitutes that everybody said was too low on society. I'm the God who showed up and hung out with the tax collectors that everybody was mad at and, and hated and didn't want a part of anymore. Because I've always been inclusive. Anybody who would repent of their sins could have eternal life, everlasting life. Now, see, some of you hear me say inclusivity and you hear what the world says. You hear inclusivity as everybody gets to go to heaven. What Jesus is saying is that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There are no favorites. The worst of the worst, the dumpster fire here today, which is all of us, or if you think you're Mother Teresa, it doesn't matter. The ground is still level. God loves us all the same. That's what he means. Inclusivity, everybody is welcome. Inclusivity doesn't mean that everybody gets into heaven because Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to God. Nobody gets to heaven unless they go through Jesus. So hear me when I say this. Inclusivity means that all are welcome, but doesn't mean that everybody gets there. See, the Muslim who believes, puts their faith in Muhammad doesn't get there, and the Buddhist who holds to Buddha doesn't get there, and the atheist who holds to their own thoughts doesn't get there, and the quote-unquote Christian church person who doesn't have a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't get there either. Because it's never been about titles. It's never been about religion. It's always been about relationship. And Jesus is incredibly inclusive. To what point? I want you to stand because I want to make this final verse read this over you. To what point, Pastor Josh? Do you understand that Heaven is so much better than this. Man, heaven is going to be such a much better place than this broken world. Your body won't hurt there. You won't have the aches and pains or the wrinkles. Some of you, I thought that would make you happy. We don't have to deal with all this crap. Heaven's going to be so much better. So, why aren't we there? I mean, I'm a believer, Pastor Josh Weiner, in heaven because if you're not dead, he's not done. He's got a plan for you. Here's what you need to understand about the heart of God. The Lord isn't really being slow, Peter tells his his readers. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise. What promise? He promised that he would come back, that Jesus would return to take us all with him. He hasn't come back yet, not because he's being slow like some people think. He's actually being patient, the Bible says, for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, to be destroyed. He's not willing that any should perish, but wants everyone to repent. He wants to extend salvation to everybody. So if you're here and you have salvation, he wants your neighbor to know about Jesus. He wants your coworker. He wants your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. He wants your enemy to know about Jesus. And he's put you in a unique spot. You are uniquely crafted and created to reach some people that nobody else can reach. God made you that way. You will be able to reach people that I could never reach. Well, you're the pastor. Yeah, and I can't reach them like you can. That's why God put you there. And he says he's not willing for any to to perish. But he says you have to have an inclusive mindset. Jesus isn't just for you. He's for everyone. Now, some of you right now, you don't have Jesus. And God's being patient for your sake. Because if you die without Jesus, you don't get heaven. You get hell. God doesn't want hell for you. Hell's meant for sin. Why would you die holding on to your sin when Jesus died to take your sin away? He died for your sin, so you don't have to hold on to him. You can give him to him. He paid paid your bill. Embrace that today. And if you already have the forgiveness of Jesus, then why are you so stuck on your plan? Why are you not offering your time, your talent, your treasure, and your testimony and leveraging all of that at the feet of Jesus so he could use you to bring other people to him? If the answer is anything other than I'm doing that, then you have a selfish problem and you're just as guilty as the leaders in this day and age. And Jesus is flipping tables today. Yeah, I may have hurt your feelings with some stuff I said, but sometimes you have to get your feelings a little bit hurt to wake up and go, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your head and I want you to pray. Close your eyes and give people in this room privacy as they give you privacy. And right now in this moment, simply say, God, where would you have me change? For many of you, those of you in the overflow room, I want you to pray as well. In the lobby, those of you online, I want you to pray with me as well. Close your eyes, bow your head, and right now, don't be distracted by anything going on around you. You just have a conversation between you and God. And You say, God, what do you have for me? How would you have me be better? God, how can I change? God, where have I, where have I allowed myself to, to, to take advantage of people? Where am I using people for my own means? Where, God, am I becoming the kind of person who's selfish? Forgive me, God, forgive me. God, where have I allowed distractions to keep me from focusing on you? God, has my worship been diluted? Have I been less of who you've called me to be because I've, I've been wrapped up with the marketplace of the world around me? God, have I become biased? Have I stopped caring about the people around me because I'm so focused on me? God, am I I as guilty as the other people in that story? Lord, forgive me. Let me have a heart that says everybody is welcome at Jesus' feet. God, let me have a heart that sees everybody around me, not just my friends. Let me see some of my coworkers and some of my classmates. Let me see some of my neighbors. Let me see see the barista at, at, at my coffee shop. Let me see the person checking me out at the grocery store. Let me see others the way you see them, God. Let me have a heart that points other people to you. As I pray, why don't you pray right where you're standing, right where you are, wherever you are under the sound of my voice, why don't you just pray and say, God, help me. Forgive me. Those of you that don't have Jesus right now, God is patiently giving you more time to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All you have to do is say, God, forgive me. Lord, my sins are something I can't fix, but I know you did. You paid for it. God, forgive me. I'm turning to you. You be the Lord of my life. You, you call the shots in my life. You sit in the driver's seat for a change. Lord, I need you. It doesn't have to be those exact words, but if you have that heart right now before God, a repentant, humble heart where you surrender, the Bible says that Jesus will not only become your Lord and Savior, he'll cleanse you. He'll take away every sin that you've ever committed, and one day he'll give you a home in heaven when you die but the decision is yours. I'll pray for you, but I can't make that decision for you. So as I pray, why don't you pray? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are and all that you've given us. God, thank you for loving us. Help us, Lord God, to do better. Help us, Lord God, to be closer to you. Help us, Lord God, to be the kind of people that know and follow you. Lord forgive us for the distractions that we have in our life that take us away from you God forgive us for the biases in our life where we somehow think that you don't love the other people as much as you love us God that God forgive us for forgetting about the fact that you don't want our neighbors to go another day without knowing you you don't want the kid on the bus to to go another day without hearing about how you loved them God you don't want any of the people in our lives to miss out on you and yet Lord so often we are quiet when you've called us to point people to you. So help us, God. Help us be more bold. Help us to leave this message looking more like Jesus than how we started. God, I pray for the people who need you as their Savior. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would be that temple that carries the Holy Spirit with us everywhere we go, where we would be a light that shines in the darkness that's around us. Forgive us for the times that we're scared, God. Forgive us for the times that we're selfish. Forgive us for chickening out when you clearly told us to bring bravely, boldly tell people about you. God, help us do better this week. Lord, may we decrease and you increase. And God, we believe that as we trust you with this, that you will do more through us than we could ever do on our own. So we, we put our faith in this and we ask it, we pray it, we believe it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. God's people said, amen. If you'd like to support the ministries of Harbor as we bring the hope of Jesus to our community and around the world, you can visit harborchurch.com slash give or text any amount to 84321. Thanks for listening. See you next week.